Hey there, everybody. This is Tom Salemi, your host of the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're visiting with Eric Timko. Eric is the former CEO of Blue Belt Technologies, which is a really uh, innovative robotics startup. Innovative in a lot of ways, both in its technology, and we'll get into that story in this podcast, but also how it built its strategy around being a, a second mover in the orthopedics robotic space, really tracking closely with Mako and, and even targeting areas where Mako had had some commercial success. So uh, Blue Belt represents the, the, the strategy that a second mover can, can sort of use, uh, the, 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 the company that comes in and recognizes the deficiencies of the leader and really works to, uh, to capitalize on those. So Eric's a good guy. Uh, he uh, led the company until it was acquired by Smith & Nephew, and he worked at Smith & Nephew until just, uh, just recently on June 3rd. He said goodbye, and he's uh, taking a, a little time off uh, while he looks for his next opportunity. No doubt he'll find one sooner rather than later. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and not only about the robotic space, but about how companies can build themselves uh, around the shortcomings of their competitors. Well, Eric Timko, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, again, thank you for your uh, participation at the MedTech Conference. Uh, I thought the uh, robotics panel was a great one. It was a lot of fun talking to you guys. Yeah, I had a lot of fun as well. And I've had actually some great follow-ups since the uh, conference with some of the people I met or some of the people I knew just to kind of tell the story a little bit more and uh, talk about the market. So it was, uh, it was a good good for both of us, hopefully. Good. No, I'm glad it was productive. So I wanted to sort of recap. You've got, you had a great outcome with, with Blue Belt, and you're the former CEO of Blue Belt, Blue Belt Technologies. And um, great outcome with the acquisition of Smith & Nephew. We can get into that a little bit. But I was really kind of curious as to how the idea for Blue Belt came together, um, because it's just such a different approach to robotics. It's not this, this, this huge console that's going to take up half the room. Uh, it's a smaller handheld device, and, and anybody can sort of get a look uh, a look at the t- technology. Bluebelt Bluebelt Tech is still up, and you've got a video up there that sort of shows how it works. But uh, tell us, take us back to the very beginning. How did you get into the robotic space? You are a device guy, but how did you find your way to Bluebelt, or how did it find its way to you? Yeah, so so first of all, I credit with uh, with the technology a uh, couple couple guys. Uh, Craig Markovitz was the former CEO and kind of the business guy behind Blue Belt when it was spun on a Carnegie Mellon. Branko Yaramez was a PhD, became our CTO and is still with the company and, and really the brains behind the, the product and, and the technology. And then Tony DeJoya, uh, who is a orthopedic surgeon uh, in Pittsburgh, was, was really the guy that said, you know, you guys have something here. Let's figure out what it can do and what application is the right application. So these guys really spent a lot of time, you know, on the science of an early stage science project determining what was the right application, whether it was neurosurgery, whether it was spine, whether it was ENT. Um, and then in the midst of all that, Mako Surgical came out with, you know, the Rio system and, uh, and they started looking at the potential of orthopedics. When I came in, it was really at that stage, you know, we had the ability now to have a predicate device 
that could be a fast follower if if we did it right and we understood exactly you know what some of the drawbacks or or shortcomings of, of that the Mako system had and and you know kind of use those to to springboard into the marketplace. So we did a lot of early stage research and development, bringing physicians in, especially those that had used the Mako system uh, early on, and said, you know, what are the drawbacks? And and it's exactly what you said. It was size. It was portability. It was having a robotic arm versus allowing the surgeon to engage with the technology and really, you know, spend his you know, 12 years of, of uh, schooling and put that to work so that he could do the procedure and have something that kind of helped him as a fallback if he, if he started to color outside the lines. And, and so that was one piece of it. The other one was, you know, of course, clinical data is, is the most relevant thing we have in, in the med device space that, you know, takes you to the next level. And when we started looking at our data and the ability to spit out very good data with anybody else's implant, any implant, um, you know, across the board, that was a compelling story to us as well. So now we had the best of both worlds. We had a small, portable, economically friendly technology that would make, you know, the implant that we put in, no matter whose it was, consistent across the board. And I think that's what was very attractive. And, you know, as I said, we, we consider ourselves a very fast follower to Mako. We spent a lot of time in a cadaver lab trying to figure out what we had, what we needed, and more importantly, how to make a technology that was robust and would be welcomed into the uh, OR suite, not only by the surgeons, but by, you know, the tech staff and the administrative uh, teams that had to support it as well from a high level. So that, that's, and you use the, the phrase color in the lines, and this would be a good opportunity to sort of talk about the technology for people who haven't seen it. I mean, I remember seeing you at AOS a couple of years ago, and it was essentially that the, the, the surgeon, or I got to even use it, would hold this little pen shaped device, obviously larger than a pen, but hold it sort of in that fashion. And there'd be a screen there that would show the parameters of the of the bone that had to be cut, and it, it you basically could not move the device outside of of the the line or the area that had been identified for the surgery, right? Am I just- yeah, and, and and a little bit deeper than that. So what we did was we allowed the surgeon to uh, prov- we provided him a lot of information that he didn't have using manual instrumentation. So when we provided him that inf- uh, information, he was then able to or she was able to take a look at the best outcome before he ever made a cut on the bone. So leg alignment, gap balancing, all of these things that are critical to positive outcomes, he knew before he ever brought the surgical drill into play. And so when he did bring the surgical drill into play, it was in the handpiece that we developed, of course. And what it did was as he started to get towards the boundaries, either with depth, um, the system would either withdraw back into this guard, uh, protective guard, and would keep spinning, or we had another method called speed control, and as you hit the bottom of the post hole or, or you were fine-tuning the, you know, the outskirts of, of the boundaries you were trying to cut, the system would wind up if you still had more to cut or wind down and shut off uh, if it, if it you know, was at that point that, that it needed to be stopped. So, you know, as I say, it's, it's kind of rudimentary, but, but it helped the surgeon color between the lines. What happens is, you know, Tom, these guys do five, six, seven cases a day, and, you know, you're standing on your feet for six, seven, eight hours a day, and you get tired. And, you know, while, while we, we like to say that the surgeon surgeon is doing a procedure, we're also there as a, as a backstop to help them if, you know, things start to get tiring or they start to, you know, lose that perfect touch that they may have had in the first four or five cases, and, and this gives them that added protection to do it right. Was this developed for this purpose uh, uh, initially, or, or was there some sort of non-medical application that this, this, uh, this was developed for? 
You know, it's funny. Um, you hear some of these stories about the devices that were developed to, you know, for a video game or for this and that. But this was developed for a medical application. I mean, the plan was to put it into something that needed, um, you know, strong bone cutting and, 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 and consistent bone cutting. So, as I said, they looked at several applications. And, and you know, when I came in, uh, I, I was coming from the neurosurgery background and the ENT background and, and, you know, thought there was a great play there as well. And, of course, the spine market is a great opportunity for, for systems like ours. If you look at Mazor and, and Globus acquired, um, you know, the system out of Phoenix, there, there is, you know, robotics plays across uh, several applications as long as it makes sense both from a, a clinical standpoint and an economic standpoint. And, and the other piece of it that, that you hit on, which I think is really, really important, is the portability and the size of these things. If you've got a you know, million-and-a-half big behemoth of a robot sitting in a corner uh, that you can't move and you can only use in one room, you're, you're, you're tying that thing up and uh, you can't do much with it. So you know, we give the ability to have patients you know, set up in room after room after room, wheel it down the hall and kind of go one, one after the next and, and you know, produce good, consistent results and uh, um, partial knee applications and soon to be total knee applications. So you, you, you identify, you had the technology, you identify the area you wanted to go, and, and you're, you're right, you had Mako sort of blazing the trail. Um, how do you go about collecting information from the surgeons as to you know, where, where, where you're the leader in the space? I don't want to say where Mako, but where the leader in the space is, is following short. What is that process like? Are you surveying them? Are you reaching out? It's a combination of both, but I will tell you, and, and you know, I think one of the things that we did uh, that was, you know, really a, a smart decision. We just started funneling surgeon after surgeon after surgeon into the cadaver lab and and put the tool in their hands and said, you know, what are the shortfalls here? What do you like? What don't you like? And then, you know, the next question was, what other applications? Do you see this working in, and whether it was neurosurgery, whether it was sports medicine with FAI, which we were developing, all of these things came out of, you know, hundreds of cadaver labs. And you know, when I joined the company, and, and the company had been around for for some time, you know, they they had done a handful of cadavers. Well, we started you know, almost you know one a week um, when I got there, just to make sure that we had a technology that was going to stand up in a clinical environment. You know, it's very different in a, in a lab setting, and you've got people with, you know, wrenches and things that can fix problems, but in a clinical setting, you have none of that. So we, we, we made sure that this thing was going to be robust, and, you know, we're very quick to iterate. Our engineering team, led by Branco and Costa Naku and Adam Hahn and Jim Moody, these guys, you know, if, if a surgeon said something, they would go back to the team, they'd circle up in, in, you know, in the office with their guys, bring out a whiteboard, and, you know, a couple days later, we'd be trying it out. And, you know, companies don't usually react that fast, but, but this team was so, you know, entrepreneurial and so innovative uh, and such good listeners from the engineering side, which is a little bit difficult, um, that they were able to do it and get it done very nicely. How quickly did that all come together? Because you're right, you did seem to be you moved really fast, and you got this on the on the on the market, or at least uh, at AOS. I think pretty quickly from the founding of the company. How how long did everything come together? Yeah, well, you know, I think a couple of things happened. One is we did a, a feasibility study because we had CE Mark before we had a you know a 510k, and so when we had our CE Mark, we used Generation One Navio, and uh, Adam Simone was our 
uh, director of marketing clinical at the time, and you know we did our first case in in the uh, in a suite in in Belgium, and you know candidly it, it went good, it didn't go great, but just in that first case, you know we learned that efficiency was just as important as clinical outcomes. Well, when, you know when we went back to the drawing board and looked at it, the system wasn't as efficient from a workflow standpoint. So you know that's a software play, and so bringing several physicians and we brought Fred Picard in from Scotland and Alberto Gregorian from Scotland and, and Jess Lawner from Philadelphia, all of these guys and said, help us with the workflow here. You know, we were able to adapt that very, very quickly. And so we went from Gen 1 to Gen 2 to Gen 3, Gen 4 um, very quickly because we didn't need a lot of hard- hardware changes. These were mostly software and efficiency changes that can be done, you know, very rapidly. And and how did you, you, you you're in the robotic space, but again, your strength is you're not one of those big consoles. Your weakness may also be you're not one of those big consoles. People think robotics and they think, you know, this, this large system that's going to sort of take over, not everything, but take over a lot more. Was it difficult sort of selling people on the idea that this, this is a helpful robotics tool too, that this is something that will make your job easier? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> One of the one of the benefits of of uh, what was going on was our our competitor as we were launching, of course, was saying we were not robotics; we were just glorified navigation. And uh, of course, navigation gets you to the area, uh, you know, the anatomy that you need to fix or you need to cut or you need to do, it, you know, what you're going to do to it. But then it stops. And so, as soon as that was the pitch from our competitor. We put our arms around that graciously and said, "Okay, you're right. Here's the navigation piece, and we would show them how we would get to, you know, the, uh, you know, mapping the anatomy of of the condyles and and getting everything ready to gap, balance, and align, and say that's that's it. That's your navigation. Now we're going to flip on the robotics. So you're going to start cutting, Tom, and when you start cutting and you get to your boundary, that thing's going to stop. Now it doesn't stop because it's magic. It stops because it's the robotics application kicking into it. So." You know, our competitor actually helped us pitch what we could do and do differently than they did because they used force feedback, you know, through the robotic arm. We used an on-off control through robotic control of of manipulating the burr. So different way of doing it, but but pretty much the same, you know, application results. That's interesting. Were you selling to the same type of customer? Uh, You know, I... (laughs) I think we did it a little different again, and, and fortunately, we had a portable system. We had an economically friendly system. Um, so as they were selling to a lot of teaching institutions, uh, which was great, and we did the same, we also found that not only the community hospital, but the small rural hospital that wanted to differentiate um, was a great sweet spot for us. And then we took it into the outpatient surgery center, and probably a third of our business has come from that. And I will tell you that you know being able to afford a system for $400,000 versus a million two can get you in the door in those surgery centers because, again, the cost of doing that procedure is so much lower than it is in the hospital, so they're moving it out. Hi, everybody. Tom here. Please pardon the interruption, but uh, if you want to hear more from Eric and more about the robotics space, you should go to medtechconference.com. Uh, Eric was on our robotics panel, and I had the pleasure of moderating that. It gave, I thought, a really great overview of robot- where robotics was and where it's headed. So uh, go to medtechconference.com. And uh, you'll find our uh, our panel on robotics from our June first MedTech conference, which took place in Minneapolis. Now back to this conversation with Eric Timko. And we talked about this at, at the panel. And anyone who wants to watch it, you can go to medtechconference.com and, and you can watch the entire conversation. Uh, we had a great panel up there. But one of, one of the discussions was: Is robot or 
is robotics um, what is one of the appeal just the marketing element of robotics just the, the ability for an institution to say we have a robotics tool you should come have your procedure here how much of blue belt story was that or and how much of it is clinical efficacy did you really go out and demonstrate that you can do a better job by using our tool yeah so i think it's it's both but i think it's it's you know it it's it's probably weighted almost 50-50 these days because two things have happened one is that, you know physicians are trying to differentiate it as i mentioned but the only way you can differentiate is if you have good solid outcomes so so having a tool that you know does something that may be sexy because it uses the word robotics but doesn't give you a better outcome isn't going to fly. So we, we focused heavily on both showing off our clinical results and our clinical evidence and comparing them not only to, you know, what Mako was doing, which we were very comparable to, but also, you know, showing them the advantages over manual instrumentation, which, you know, depending on the implant company was significant. Uh, and then saying, you know, you, if you use this and advertise this to your patient population, because by the way, they're, they're a smart and educated population these days because they're going straight to Google and saying, you know, I need a knee replacement. What do I do next? Um, having a robotic instrument will get people in your door. And if they don't need the partial being done by the Navio system and they need a total knee, you're going to get that just because they were attracted to you because you're, you know, savvy and using a robotic instrumentation. So I think it's a, it's a strong combination of both. But, but you can't have the, uh, the, the marketing appeal or the sex appeal of robotics without having good clinical evidence. It just doesn't fly. And who were you selling to? Were you, did you have to sell? The, obviously, you have to sell the surgeons on it. But did, did the final word come from the, the technology committee at the hospitals or the CFO or whoever had to, to, to sign the check that you were going to get paid with? Yeah, two different arenas in, in, in the hospital setting. You know, we, we, the Surgeon Champion clearly helped us. Um, you know, we were open architecture, so we would usually engage several surgeons. One, one might have been a Smith & Nephew guy, one might have been a Depew guy, one might have been a Zimmer guy. And so they would all kind of go in together saying, look, we all can use our implant of choice with this system, which was a big deal. And so, they, you know, usually we had more than one surgeon champion, but then it would have to go through the administrative process. And, again, it's a capital budget, so, you know, you're, you're – you're, dollars have to be allocated that were taken from another technology that was already budgeted that you know you you pitched that you were going to do better and generate more revenue for the hospital in the in the surgery centers you know we had deals that went down as quickly as you know two to three weeks because you know the hospital down the street or another surgery center in the area was buying a system from somebody and, and they wanted to compete and not lose that patient population. So they would move and, and react very quickly. And, you know, we'd go in and do a demo and the, the surgeon would love the system. And the next thing you know, we'd have a PO and, you know, a, a paycheck and, uh, or, uh, you know, a payment in, in a very quick period of time. So did you uh, kind of build your sales strategy around places that were areas where, which were buying a Mako system? Did you then go around and kind of Talk to the neighbors and say we did that out of the start, of course, yeah, because Mako, you know, would pin and uh, and and lock down geography, um, so you know it was easy to go find their installed base, and depending on what that was, you know, anywhere from ninety days to six months, somewhere as much as a year, uh, that they couldn't sell to other hospitals in the vicinity, we would we would target those, and we we sold a lot of systems that way. Very fascinating. And, and how about on the investor front? How did the story sell there? Uh, you know. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I mean, we, we were backed by HealthPoint Capital, so, you know, the, the, the investor story was one that, that we were just executing and knocking milestones down one by one and, uh, you know, delivering the results that we told them we were going to deliver. And so, you know, the, the, the flow of dollars, um, 
you know, w- was very strong. And then, of course, we uh, we had the IP uh, infringement lawsuit that was presented to us just as we were about to go raise more growth capital uh, outside of HealthPoint Capital. And that was difficult. Um, it was difficult because, you know, our, our flagship product was now had an overhang of an IP infringement um, that, that had no merit. And uh, so we, we were able to go out and raise debt through CRG, which worked out very, very well. And, uh, and and was a big win for both sides in the midst of having an IP infringement lawsuit. So I think that's probably, you know, if you if you look at the story and what was the most difficult time, uh, we knew what we had. We knew that our IP was rock solid. We knew that, that the patent they were throwing at us, well, we knew very, very well inside and out. We had no concerns, but we were doing well in the marketplace, and that's why they came after us. And how you, you, you sort of discussed how you handled that financially, but how, how do you handle that? And a company, maybe you can give a little background on on the uh, patent infringement case as to what the what the issue was and and uh, who who the other party was. It was Mako Surgical. I'll say it. It's out there. But uh, what, how did you deal with that internally? Well, I mean, there was a couple of ways. One is, you know, the first thing most people do is panic, saying, "Holy smokes, this is our flagship product," and and there's a there's an IP infringement lawsuit against it. However, as I said. We were well aware of the patent that uh, that uh, that was you know, we claimed we infringed upon and, and knew it inside and out and uh, candidly weren't concerned and so we 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 hired um, you know a really solid um, group of lawyers to lead us down the charge and in the midst of all that we also felt that uh, they were infringing on two of our patents so we countersued and you know I think when we delivered the message and then were able to raise you know a you know forty five million dollars in the midst of a lawsuit. Um, that sent a very strong message to the market that we weren't going away. And, mm-hmm. and usually, what happens, you know, Tom, they early stage companies, they they you know they bring a lawsuit against you, and you buckle, you fold, you sell for you know pennies on the dollar, and you walk away. But we were in a position where we had strength, we had um, you know dollars behind us. We knew that we you know had something special from both the technology, the market opportunity, and the outcomes that we were delivering. That we we you know all kind of sat in a room and said, you know, let's let's you know, bow up here and, and, and go back at them just as hard. And we did. And, you know, again, I think that's one of the things that was, uh, uh, you know, it helped us through the acquisition stage that our position was so strong. How much did you ultimately raise from investors? Uh, that's, uh, that's a number I can't, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't give you. Love right. to, but I can't. Moving on. Uh, how did the uh, deal, what, what, you, you mapped out your future. Uh, you've got very, several paths in front of you. How did the deal with Smith and Nephew come into play? Did you want to, did you know you were going to sell at that time? Did they just give you a call one day and made you an offer you couldn't refuse? Uh, how did that all come together? Yeah, no, I will tell you, uh, first and foremost, you know, Smith and Nephew has been the perfect partner for, for Bluebelt. They, they are a big company with an entrepreneurial spirit, and we knew that from the day we engaged with them and started working with them. So, you know, when we went open architecture um, and we, you know, started working with all of the companies, you know, they all saw, as I told you, from kind of Gen 1 to, to Gen 5, 6, 7, as we kept iterating, you know, we would show it off at every meeting and say, hey, just want to show you the changes we made. And when you're ready to jump on board from, you know, your implant standpoint, we'd love to have you. And Smith and Nephew was one of the first to engage um, and when they engaged, they engaged from both the top down and the bottom up. And so what that meant to us is 
we had buy-in that this was going to help boost their implant business. And in the, in the process of, of boosting their implant business, you know, the relationship continued to develop. And as we started to show them more of what we were doing, and, and by the way, we were showing, you know, the rest of the market as well because we had nothing to hide. Uh, everybody was excited about it, and then and they said, you know what, this is something we think will help grow our business for years to come, and and made a strong move. And so, you know, I, I would say, and and even post, you know, integration, um, they've done a great job leaving our team intact, leaving the facilities and the people uh, that that are, are you know have built Blue Belt uh, doing what they do best, which is innovating, which is driving you know product in the market, and uh, they've had you know some really strong quarters since we've closed. Did you know that you needed that big partner to, to really take this technology to where it needed to be? Um, no, I think we, we, we could have gone either way. Um, and again, you know, if you looked at just the, you know, the, the numbers in the acquisition, you know, we got a very strong multiple. However, we surely were prepared to keep, uh, keep forging ahead. We had, you know, several applications in development and, and you know, a couple of them are game changing. And so, you know, Smith and Nephew recognized that as well, and uh, as did the investor community that we were working with. And I think, you know, if, if we didn't get acquired a, at a multiple that worked for all of us, mm-hmm. uh, we would have raised, you know, a, a probably another significant round of of growth capital and and really gone strong on other applications and increasing the uh, the commercial footprint footprint in the field. And the and the price was uh, two seventy five. That's what I've seen reported two hundred seventy five million. Is that uh, was that a up front, was that including earnouts? What was how was that uh, structured? It, it was an all cash deal. All cash deal. So yeah, don't see many of those these days. That's that's good. Uh, just finally, uh, what's next for you? I know I know you had feelings, or you still probably feel that the the blue belt technology could be used in other specialties. Um, and we talked a bit of the panel. You know, what's next for robotics? Is this the very theme of the panel? Was sort of is robotic? You know, where is robotics? in its maturation. What is next for robotics? And um, let's answer that question first, and then we'll get into what, what's next for Eric. Well, I think, and I said it on the panel, I said, look, there's two things that, that really have to come into play. One, it has to have a clinical outcome that is needed, right? So throwing a bunch of things at a wall and hoping it sticks for any application, uh, even when it has good solid clinical outcomes, whether it's manually or through a specialized instrument or a smart instrument, isn't going to fly. So I think it needs to have, uh, and, and partial knees was a great one because it's a really difficult procedure, but a procedure that needs stronger clinical outcomes. So as long as you can find that and keep navigating through that, I think robotics will continue to make a significant impact. The other thing is is that um, you know obviously it extends physicians' careers. You know it makes you know the guy that only does five a year as good as the guy that does fifty a year, and so all of those things come into play. And then the second piece of it is the economic piece. I mean you know we look at where healthcare is going, and we look at the bundling and, and all of the things that are happening with reimbursement. You, you can't continue to sell technologies like this for you know a million. Two million, three million bucks. I just don't think that's going to fly. I think that you know one of the reasons we've been so successful is you know our price point of five hundred thousand or four hundred fifty thousand dollars, depending on what you buy with the system, um, is really the right price point to to get the technology into the hands of many physicians and not just those that are in the big big uh, teaching institutions. And how about for you? Are you going to get tired of hanging up in the deck of your yacht, uh, Mr. Roboto, and, uh, <laughs> and, and get a job again? Or uh, what's next for Eric? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. Um, and I'm joking I, about I, the yacht. I don't know what your yacht's name is, but I'm sure it's great. 
<laughs> well, first of all, it's not a yacht, but uh, it's a boat. <laughs> but, but you know, I will tell you that the, what's interesting is I've taken a lot of calls since, uh, since the announcement, since we've closed, and then just in the last month or two, and I've jumped on a couple boards. And, and uh, the, only, the only things I want to do are those that are interesting to me where I have either the relationships, the connections, or like the, the, the company's portfolio of products. And then in the meantime, you know, start looking for my next CEO role, which, again, is a compelling technology that, that drives strong clinical outcomes. And, you know, if I can find a robotics play, a smart instrument play, uh, that would be fantastic. If I could find a company that is, you know, really in need of, of, of you know, energy and a culture change and, you know, a better commercial strategic play, uh, that's something in my sweet spot, which is, you know, really kind of, uh, my background as a sales and marketing guy. So, you know, I just want to make sure that, that what I do next is not only exciting to me, but but, but it's going to deliver solid outcomes for, uh, you know, patients that, that are using that technology and, and as much for the investors as well. Great. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of attractive opportunities out there and, and know that uh, when you find that uh, that new home, you're always welcome back here to, to tell us all about it. Well, be good. Yeah, look forward to it. Well, appreciate the time and enjoyed it and appreciate the panel at the conference. And uh, like I said, I've got nothing but good feedback. from That was fun to do. Excellent. Thanks for taking some time today, Eric, and have a great summer. All right, Tom, you too. Well, thanks, Eric Timko, for joining us and for uh, being a good sport. I'm glad you're enjoying some well-deserved time off. And I really look forward to talking to you about your next opportunity. Uh, Blue Belt was certainly uh, a fun one to watch. Thanks, of course, to our MedTech Talk listeners. Thank you for joining us and for, for listening. And I hope these conversations uh, help you uh, find the solutions you need to uh, get your products on the market and in the hands of the people who can do some real good with them. So appreciate your taking some time today with us. As always, I hope it's fruitful. And uh, don't forget to go to the MedTechConference.com website for more uh, information uh, from our MedTech Conference site. We've got our panel discussions up there, our, our interviews with Jeff, Martha, and others. And uh, I think it's just a really great resource for MedTech investors, entrepreneurs, and execs. So thanks for joining us again on the MedTech Talk Podcast.